You're listening to a sermon from Tyler Christian Fellowship in Tyler, Texas. Find us on the web at tcftyler.com or send us an email, tcftyler at gmail.com. Children's volunteer, so I'm going to be working in the children's ministry and David's going to be sharing the word um, this morning. Um, so the kids are free to go to children's ministry. And I'll be there in just a second. This past um, Thursday night was uh, Renew. Uh, there was a pa- there was a pastors uh, conference uh, in the morning and then Renew at night. And this is like the kickoff event of the. Uh, Luis Palau um, festival that's coming in October um, and I was just blown away man I mean it was that it was at Green Acres I don't know how many uh, people the big sanctuary holds but it looked like there was at least 2,000 people there um, all of the work that we've done coming up to that point and just to be there and see that many people and just realize that's just a drop in the bucket compared to what God is fixing to do in Tyler um, so uh, the next thing coming up, we, we will have um, something here. We're going to have a uh, evangelism. Uh, what is it called? Organic evangelism. You can look it up online. Uh, it's an evangelism course that's going to be here at TCF on um, Saturday, May the 20th. Is, is it a Tuesday? Okay. May the 21st. And so that's going to be, uh, in, it's going to be all day. Uh, well, like um, starting in the morning, yeah. Um, so put that on your calendar. If you're able to be here, uh, we'd really love to have you. It's just a, it's a, it's called organic evangelism because it's just a way to share your faith and share the gospel with people um, in just a very normal way. Just teaching us how to be bold in our lives to be able to reach out and touch the lives that are around us. So looking forward to that. All right. So uh, let's give David a good welcome as he comes uh, to share the word this morning. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Good morning. Man, how about the rain? Amen. Saying the rain is a sign of blessing from the Lord in the Bible. Well, that's post-Noah, right? So, yeah. So rain is a sign of blessing. So, man, the last two days we have been super blessed. And uh, in my yard, I know needed it. I don't know about you, but I've been a little neglectful this spring. So, very thankful and thankful for you today for braving the storms and coming out and uh, just coming together to be a part of what God's going to do. I believe every time that we get together on a Sunday morning or in a small group or on a Wednesday night or any time that God's people come together like this, uh, God is here with us. He's present and anything is possible. And so this morning, I'm just believing him to speak to your heart. If you're brand new with us, uh, we want to especially welcome you. And uh, we just have a little saying around here, go something like this. You may be new to us this morning, but your Heavenly Father, He knows you, and He knows exactly how to speak to your heart. And He wants to do that this morning. So all we ask of you is to just sit back, relax, make yourself at home, and uh, just uh, take in all that He has to say to you this morning. Amen? Well, um, we have, we're wrapping up, we wrapped up actually a five-week series on the mission statement. And I'm just going to throw a pop quiz on the body this morning. And we're going to state the mission statement out loud. And I'm not going to give you any prompts. Well, I might give you a small prompt. All right. So let's take it from the T. R. A. C. Come on. With. Track, touching lives, reaching families, affecting our city to change our world with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Man, I'd give you all an A. Good job, good job. So, I don't know about you, every time we go back over the mission statement, it just helps me reorient to like, what is our purpose collectively as a body? And that mission statement is not only applicable, you know, on a corporate level, but it's a great personal mission statement. And it's really the DNA of who we are as a body we're, we're a body who wants to touch lives. That's primary, number one. We want to touch lives as they come into here, but we want to touch lives as we go out there. We want to reach families. 
And we want to have a big effect on this city and to change the world with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So that has been uh, our mission statement for many, many years. And it always helps me just to personally uh, reorient myself to that. Um, as you guys know that throughout the uh, past five weeks, we have been the way that we've been doing this is we've been featuring uh, someone from the body that kind of represents um, or can speak to each one of those uh, letters. Uh, we touch in lies. We heard from uh, uh, we heard from Doreen Hegg week one about touching lives at the uh, crisis pregnancy center, and then reaching families. Becky Burton. Thank you for my, uh, Emily's not only a great wife, but she's also an awesome church secretary, so so thankful for her. Becky Burton was week two, talked to us about reaching children in the body. It was awesome. And affecting our city, we heard from Fritz Hager, who is the uh, superintendent of Tyler Schools. He came in and shared with us his heart for reaching uh, uh, not just the kids in the public schools of Tyler, but all the kids of Tyler. That was amazing. And then changing our world, Elizabeth and and I got to do that interview. That was fun. So Elizabeth and Catherine McPherson, and they were here, and they spoke to us about going out to the mission field and, uh, and their heart for different mission groups and people groups. And just inspired. I felt inspired coming away from that interview. It was awesome. But then last week, we wrapped it up with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we were going to have an interview uh, with someone uh, special in our body uh, that has just come back from a mission trip. But uh, timing didn't work out last week. So we're going to go ahead and conduct that interview today. So if y'all would, give me a, a big help welcoming Eric Beeson to the stage. All right, so Eric just got back from Tijuana, Mexico, and I went on a mission trip there. So I'm going to let him tell us a little bit about it. Eric, um, who did you go with and what were you going for? Um, I went with Antioch Community Church of Waco, and they're actually a movement, so they have churches um, all over the United States and also in a lot of other countries. Um, and we worked with um, All People's Church Tijuana, which is a church plant of Antioch. Um, and the reason I went, um, well, Mexico's cool, but also it was partly kind of selfish because I wanted, I wanted more from God but um, he had a bigger plan, so. Mm. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about, like, what were the real-time needs of the people in Tijuana that you guys went to minister to? Um, their needs were, honestly, a little similar to ours. Obviously, they have less resources and less money, but um, broken families, a lot of poor people, homeless people, um, and we can find that stuff all around our city, but a lot of people got healed um, physically of... Um, Eye problems was a big thing. People got healed of that. Um, and a lot of people got saved, which is really awesome. Um, but their needs were kind of similar to ours, but they were just so open, yeah. which is great. Yeah. That's awesome, man. So um, what, in that trip, like, what was the most impactful moment of your time in Tijuana? Like, what was the biggest thing that you saw God do that just so left an impression on you? You said people were healed of eye, eye diseases and different things like that, and that's always incredible when you see God manifest healing that way. But was there anything else that really just just jumped out at you on this trip that blew you away? Um, really, the testimonies was the biggest thing um, because we shared testimonies every night. And it was just, wow, because God does so many things and I can't be everywhere at once. So um, you hear about all the testimonies was amazing. And also um, the worship was just so amazing getting to encounter God like it changes you so yeah amen amen so like you coming back from Tijuana and from that culture and uh, that missions culture and then coming back into Tyler Christian Fellowship how has that trip changed you like what what kind of mark has it left on you personally um it's like helped me better understand like God's calling in my life to reach people and I've I mean that's God's calling for all of us but I feel like God really is calling me to um, be really mission-oriented. Yeah. Um, but one important thing is, um, I mean, I'm in a text group with all the people who are there, and I would say if you ever go on a mission trip, you have to stay in contact with some people because 
you really need that encouragement. That's what the church is, and you can't do it alone. And all they're still sharing testimonies. Like right, um, there was one a few days ago. So it's yeah. great. It's awesome when you have a common experience together with a group of people, and then you come back, and it's like for weeks after that, even you're debriefing, and you're like, "Can you believe God did this? Can you believe God did that?" Yeah. That's always an, uh, an incredible part of the journey. So okay, so speak to the body for a minute. What would you say to people that right now are thinking about going out on the mission field, maybe for the first time, uh, maybe to take a short-term mission trip, or even thinking about something longer, three months, six months? What would be your encouragement to the, to the body? Um, I would say, I mean, pray about where to go um, and when to go. But if you have trouble hearing God, I think it's okay if you go on a mission trip. Um, but I would say just really surrender to God because when you let down those boundaries is when he really comes in and just wrecks you in the best way possible. That was like the theme word for the trip. Um, but like I had an encounter with God on Tuesday, um, which was when I finally just let down my boundaries because God is, I guess you could say he's, he's polite, he loves you, but he's not just going to bust in, you know. But he will wreck you if you let him and, and, and he'll, you'll never be the same. So just surrender and uh, also keep a good group of people who will help will encourage you to continue on. Amen. Awesome. Well, we're so proud of you, um, and we're so uh, thankful that you got to go and kind of represent this body out on the mission field. And so God bless you. Thank you for sharing with us this morning. Amen. Amen. It's been so good, hadn't it, from week to week to be able to hear from different people in the body and their experiences in serving the Lord. And I don't know about you guys, but when I hear a testimony like that or, or someone else who's serving in some ministerial capacity or whatever it may be, it charges my faith. It's like shar it sharpens my iron and it makes me want more too. And I trust that it's having that effect on you as well. Uh, this morning, um, I'm going to preach a standalone message. This is sort of springboarding off of our track mission statement uh, series and also looking forward to our Easter series um, which is going to begin next week and run until uh, Easter. Today um, we're going to talk a little bit about um, how to shift the culture that we live in. I've entitled this message Building a Christ-Centered Culture in a Man-Centered World. Um, when we were going through the track series that uh, last week or two, if you notice, I mean, I'm sure you've picked this up already, in the track statement, it starts with one, and it ends with the world. We touch one life first, and then we advance to a family, a city, and then the world. But when we landed the series, we kind of brought it back around to how do we change the world? That's a huge task. That's enormous. And so we think about something like that, you can get overwhelmed at, the, at how do I, how does one person change the world for Jesus Christ? And we kind of landed back on, we came back around and landed on, it begins by the first part, touching one life, touching that one that's right in front of you uh, that, that you're present with. I shared the testimony about praying for that guy at the gym and having that encounter with him. Uh, uh, that opportunity to share the love of God with him and point him to Jesus and pray for uh, his leg. By the way, as a follow-up to that, I saw that guy uh, this past week at the gym again, and he was like, man, my leg is 100% better. Thank you for praying for me, and thank you for taking time to invest. And um, Yeah, amen, glory to God. So um, uh, that's how we begin. That's how we begin. That's how we fulfill the, the mission statement of touching the world by we touch one life at a time. The thing about touching lives, though, is usually our encounters with lives don't often happen the way that one did at the gym, one-on-one -on -one with one person. A lot of times, most of the lives that we're touching are lives that are connected to or are a part of a culture that we are a part of. Uh, for example, a workplace culture, uh, some organization or ministry culture that you're a part of, or um, maybe uh, uh, an association you belong to. You have a culture of people that you're in community with. You have a church culture here. Uh, even your family at home, you have a family culture. So the lives that we usually touch are connected with a culture that we're a part of. 
And God has not only called us to be a part of that culture, our mandate is to change that culture. Amen? God said, Jesus said, we are the light of the world. City on a hill cannot be hidden. We, when we, when we, uh, when you light a light, Jesus said, don't put a bushel over it, don't put a shade over it and dull it down. Let it shine before all men that they might see your good works and glorify our God on the day he visits us. This is our call. Paul said that we're ministers of reconciliation. We are to go to people who are hurting and dying and lost and separated from God and reconcile to bring the good news of the gospel that God that sent his son to die for them, to reconcile them, to close the gap between him and them. We're ministers of reconciliation. Our calling is to shift the culture of this world and to change things. That is what we're called to. So we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Um, first of all, let's maybe get a better understanding of what I mean by culture. A culture is like a group that shares a set of shared attitudes, values, goals, and practices that characterizes an institution or organization. Every culture possesses common attitudes, common values, common goals that characterize that culture. So you know what I'm talking about. If you work in a workplace um, where people are constantly negative, they never see the upside of anything. They're always complaining about how much work there is to do or how mean the boss is, and yada, yada, yada. And there's this culture of negativity. It's a shared attitude within that culture or value to be negative. Or if you are around people who are, um, you know, just secular in nature, they're not really aware of God. They don't know God. And so they're constantly trying to figure out problems and issues that they're dealing with by man-made wisdom, by their own understanding. And there's just this culture of secularism where God never gets brought into the equation of what you're trying to figure out within that culture. There's all kinds of cultures uh, that we're a part of, and they're just usually characterized by those common attitudes and values that are held within that culture. And sometimes they're not, they're not great, but that's where we come in. That's our assignment. Listen, if you're a part of a workplace or an association or a business or a ministry or a family, you are in a culture not randomly. You're there by God's design. You're His answer. You're His voice. You're His hands and feet. You are His representation within that culture. You're not there randomly. And guess what? If you're there... That's a good indication that God's favor is on that because you're there representing him and you have an opportunity to speak into it and change the culture of that thing that you're a part of. So I want to talk about three things today that I believe uh, we're called to be as far as how we shift the culture around us. Here they are. Number one, we're called to be cult culture discerners. Number two, we're called to be culture disruptors. And number three, we're called to be culture developers. And we're going to unpack all three of these in light of what Scripture has to say uh, about these three things. So first of all, I want to talk about what does it mean to be a culture discerner? Well, if you're going to reach a culture that you're a part of, you need to understand it. You need to understand what makes the people in this culture tick. What is it about them uh, that they hold in common with each other? What are the things that they find interesting? Or what are the things that, what are the inroads into their heart? Who are these people that I'm in culture with? So to do that, you need to be a little bit discerning. In fact, there's an a, 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 uh, a, a attribute or a characteristic called emotional intelligence that I want to talk about for a minute. A lot of people... There's a lot of people I've known that are intellectually intelligent, but not emotionally intelligent. You know what I mean? Like they're book smart, and they could tell you, they could rattle off knowledge like, like nobody you've ever seen. But when it comes to knowing their own heart and their own emotions and how to share those things and how those things affect other people, or 
being able to understand the emotions of other people and how to reach their heart, they're just, they're just bankrupt. And they're not emotionally intelligent. Um, here's a good definition of what I'm talking about. The ability to identify and manage one's own responses and emotions as well as the responses and emotions of others. Emotionally intelligent people, they're the kind of people that can walk into a room and within just a very short amount of time, they kind of have a read on everybody in the room. They kind of discern what people are about. And, and these types of people, usually um, you find them in sales or you find them at a poker table or you find them using that gift in a way because they have such an innate ability to know somebody's heart and know what they're thinking and get a read on them. Now, I believe that every gift, especially like a gift like emotional intelligence, is given by God for godly reasons, for godly purposes. Emotional intelligence or being a good discerner of people is given to us primarily so that we can understand people better and share the heart of God with them, to know right where they are and to know how to meet them right in the place where they are to share God's love with them. I believe that's the highest calling for emotional intelligence or discernment or any other gift that we're given. And I believe that one of the best examples of this is in the life of Paul. We're going to look at his life for a moment. Um, Paul, Paul made this statement. He said, to the Greeks, I became Greek. To the Romans, I became Roman. I become all things to all men that I might win some. So Paul had the ability to go within a culture and sort of blend in and get to know what makes those people tick and then use that as an open door to share the gospel that he would win some. I think one of the clearest examples of how Paul was a great cultural discerner is seen in the book of Acts in chapter 17. Paul is uh, on a missionary journey. He's traveling with Silas and Timothy. They hit Thessalonica and they run into trouble. Some guys come out, some uh, Jews come out and they're persecuting Paul and Silas and Timothy pretty heavily. So they flee Thessalonica and they go down to Berea. The Bereans were, Bereans were a little bit more accepting and would listen at least and, and see what scripture had to say about it. But this group followed them down from Thessalonica to Berea and there began to again antagonize them. So uh, Silas and Timothy told Paul, you go ahead and head out and get out of town. Go down to Athens and we'll catch up with you later. So Paul goes down to, the, to Athens to wait on them. But we know Paul. Paul's not the kind of guy that can sit on his hands for very long, right? So he gets into Athens and, and it says that he goes into Athens and he begins to look around at all these idols. You know, because Athens, heavy Greco-Roman influence, lots of Greek god statues everywhere. They're polytheistic they worship all kinds of gods. Zeus is maybe their main god, but they have many other small gods. Well, Paul's walking around Athens, and he gets provoked. That's the Bible's, that's a nice way of saying he got angry. He looked around, and he saw all these idols, and he sees one with an inscription to an unknown god on it. And he gets an idea. So Paul's meeting with these people. He's meeting in the marketplaces. He's meeting in the synagogues, and he is sharing the gospel. Some people are listening to him, some people aren't. But they at least find what he has to say somewhat fascinating. So they give him a personal invitation to the Areopagus. And what the Areopagus is, it was kind of a central gathering place. At one time, it might have been used as a kind of a courtroom to put people on trial uh, to hear uh, whether what they had to say about their version of God was worth hearing or not. So at this time, it was kind of a a communal gathering place. The Epicureans and the Stoic Greek philosophers came together there. They, they debated about the gods and who had the greatest god and whatnot. Well, Paul gets a personal invite into the Areopagus. Some people wonder if he was taken there by force, but kind of by the language they use with him, it doesn't sound like he's there um, against his wishes or, or by force. But, so we're going to pick it up from there. I want you to watch what I'm talking about in action. Watch this guy's discernment and use of emotional intelligence as we read this. 
Acts 17, 23-28. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Let's stop right there. You see what he did? You see what Paul did? He met them where they are. He used what made these peoples, what lit their fire. He understood what made them tick. Obviously, looking around this city, it wasn't hard to figure out. These people are religious. There's spirituality going on here. I can use that. And so that's how he opens his, uh, his uh, statement here. I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Those final couple of sentences there are in quotes for a reason. Paul is quoting to them two of their, uh, two of their very famous Greek philosophers. One of them was a man named Epimenides, and the other one was Aratus. In him we live and move and have our being was, written by, was a poem written by Epimenides about Zeus. For we are indeed his offspring was a hymn that was written to Zeus by Aratus. Look at what Paul did. He took two of their most famous authors and a poem and a song that these people knew very well and he conscripted it to, uh, to use it as an open door to tell them about the real God in whom we live and move and have our being and the real God of whom we are indeed his offspring. This is an amazing um, display of emotional intelligence. This is an amazing uh, display of someone who has a good grasp on how to reach people's hearts. Because how often do we get it in our minds, we're going to reach people, we're going to shift our culture, but rather than meeting them where they are and, and using what they know, we come and blindside them you know, with a, a language that they don't even speak, Christianese. You know what I'm talking about? You've seen Christians do this. I had somebody do this to me when I was living in the world years ago back in college. This guy, bless his heart, he came to me and wanted to share the gospel with me. Being raised in a Christian family and in church, I knew the gospel story. But he comes to me and he begins to like speak language to me that was just like over my head. And he's like trying to give me this object lesson about, here, take this penny from me. And I, I took it and he was like, Now, you've received something from me, and I can't take it back. And I'm like, okay. And then he got all turned around trying to use the analogy and forgot how it went. And he was like, I'm sorry. And I was like, it's cool, man. It's cool. I was like, it's cool. I know where you're going with this. And he's like, "Uh, so anyway, God loves you. And he got all confused and, like, left. I felt bad for the guy. But, like, he he was trying to come at me with, with a language and a, presentation that was so far removed from where I was at the moment instead of just simply meeting me where I was hey man how's your day going you working hard or hardly working you know what I'm talking about you know just kind of use that just just be cool just be cool just meet people where they are it's not a sales job you're just meeting people where they are there's a couple of things that we have to uh, that I think are good to keep in mind if we're going to be a good cultural discerner Here's the first, there's two really, observe and obey. First of all, just do what Paul did. Just be observant. Just be observant. Just be aware of what makes these people tick. I guarantee you that if you live your life on mission, and especially if you devote your heart to changing the culture that you're in, 
whether it's your work culture or whatever you're involved with, God is going to open your eyes and you are going to see a little more clearly what people are about. And He's going to give you an inroad into reaching their heart. Your job is just to ask and then be observant. Don't miss out on what He's showing you. Um, the second part of that is to obey. So when you see it, when you see that open door, for example, when, when uh, Philip was sent to catch up to the chariot by the, by the Holy Spirit, God told Philip, run and catch up to the chariot. And he had an opportunity to share Jesus with this guy, but there was no clear instruction on how to do that. So he catches up to the chariot, and this Ethiopian eunuch is on top of the chariot, happens to be reading Isaiah 53 out loud. What do you know? Open door opportunity. And so Philip just meets him right where he is, and he says, hey, do you know what you're reading? Do you understand that? And the guy's like, as a matter of fact, I don't. Who is this talking about? Who is the scripture talking about? Door swings wide open for Philip to get, invites him up into the chariot, goes up into it with him, shares the gospel with him. This guy gives his life to Jesus. The next body of water they come to, the guy gets baptized. Just be observant. Just be observant and look for those windows. Look for those open doors of opportunity within the culture that you're in. And it may be something like this. A co-worker's having a really bad day. Or what you hear in their heart is discouragement. Or what you see is a struggle. And God is showing you something. Now the world culture is to just ignore that. You don't want to get involved in that. That's messy. But we're here to change the world culture. We're here to bring Jesus' culture into the world culture. Amen? So you be observant. And then whatever the Lord gives you, you obey. I don't know what that looks like in any given situation. It may just be a word of encouragement to that person. It may be praying for them. I don't know what that's going to look like in your situation. But be observant and be obedient to whatever God is saying for you to do. Amen? Let's move on. Number two, we are called to be culture disruptors. What do I mean by disrupt? Just a basic definition. To interrupt an event, activity, or process from following its normal course or flow by causing a disturbance. And I put in parentheses, see Jesus. Because that pretty much sums up his entire ministry on earth. Amen? That picture that I have there is kind of descriptive of that definition. It's a set of railroad tracks. And just by the flick of a switch at a control center somewhere, a train that's headed one direction, thousands of pounds of steel and metal, by the flick of a switch can suddenly be rerouted or sent a complete different direction. It interrupts the normal uh, uh, course of flow for that train. And in the same way, when we live on mission, and when we minister to people, and when we set our hearts on changing culture in the very same way, we can become that switch that completely changes someone's current path or route for the better. We can take them from a course of destruction or death to a course of hope and life, we can be like that railroad switch. So let's talk about that. I jokingly said, see the life of Jesus for this definition, but come on. That's what his whole ministry was about. Jesus was a culture interrupter. He was counter-cultural from the very beginning. All of Israel's looking for this Messiah to come that's going to rescue and bring redemption to the nation. And they've got these high ideas about what it's going to be like. And then he shows up, and it's completely countercultural to what they thought. This king of kings and lord of lords on whom the government will rest on his shoulders doesn't get born in a palace. He's born in a manger, right? This child who gets separated from his parents at the age of 12, 
as they're on their yearly pilgrimage to Jerusalem on the way back, he gets separated. They go back to look for him. He's not playing games. He's in the temple being taught by the leaders. No. Teaching the leaders. Countercultural. Things that make you go, huh? Just follow his life out. Every step of the journey was just like that. Jewish law says don't touch dead bodies. Jesus is raising people from the dead. Don't touch the sick. Don't put your hands on sick people. Jesus is touching and healing everybody. Don't talk to women. Jesus is parking himself at the well, speaking to not just a woman, but a Samaritan woman, a a people group who were kind of at odds with the Jews. Everything he did interrupted culture. But it wasn't in a negative way. It wasn't in a bad way. When Jesus interrupted culture, he had one thing in mind to reveal the heart of the Father. That's what his mission was. He came to be a propitiation for the sins of mankind, and he came to show us who the Father really is. Amen? And so, think about this. The Jews had lived under the law from Mount Sinai all the way to his time, about you know, 1,400, 1,300 plus years of living under a law that sort of gave us an impression of who God is, but it, as he, the writer of Hebrews says, the law sort of veiled God's heart. It said, Paul said to this day when the law is read, it's like a veil is put over their hearts. They couldn't see behind the veil to see who, who this father really is. They had the rules. They had a lot of code and rule. And the Pharisees just kept heaping rules on top of the rules they already had. But when Jesus came, as Hebrews also says, when Jesus comes, the veil is taken away. And you're able to clearly see the heart of the Father. The disciples asked Jesus one time, because he's talking about the Father a lot, and they asked him, when are, when are you going to show us the Father? Philip point blank asked him, Jesus, when are you going to show us the Father? You remember Jesus' reply, right? He said, Philip, have I not been with you this long? And still you don't know that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so when Jesus interrupts culture, when Jesus causes a disruption in the normal flow of of events and the way that things went on within the culture of the Jews of that day, he's doing it for a great reason, to reveal to them who the Father is and also who he is. So I want you to think about that for a minute. And let's look at this. There's a couple of ways that I believe that we... Uh, can be great cultural disruptors. First one is this, to listen. And the second one is this, to love. Be a great listener to the culture that you're within. Not just an observer, not just what you see. Because listening takes it another step. You have to make time to sit down with people. You have to make time to listen to their heart. I have a a documentary about um, one of my favorite singer-songwriters, Rich Mullins. Rich Mullins, probably a lot of you guys know who he is. Some of you younger guys don't. Rich Mullins is just an incredible singer-songwriter, way ahead of his time, Uh, died way too soon. But in this documentary... um, they're interviewing people, and there's this common theme. They're talking to just a whole myriad of, of, of people who knew Rich. And the one thing that everybody keeps saying on this video is, um, you know, the one thing that they so appreciated about Rich Mullins was that he was a great listener, which is so countercultural to Nashville. Because in the music scene, even in the Christian music scene, everybody wants to tell you their story, but nobody really wants to listen to yours. And so everybody on this documentary was saying, the thing about Rich is you were just so, it was just so cool to be in his presence and you want to you hear everything he's doing and everything. And he would just say, well, let's forget about me. What about you? And he would turn the table on them and he would say, tell me what's going on in your life. And they're like, 
Well, just regular stuff. You know, these are people that weren't doing anything. They weren't involved in any, you know, they didn't have a name or they didn't have fame. And he, he's the one that should be telling everything about his story. But he would turn the table and he'd say, ah, who cares? Tell me about your life. What's going on at your church? What are you involved in? That was who he was. And a lot of different people on this documentary said if there was one thing that made Rich Mullins the most like Jesus, it's that he just actually sat down and cared about you and listened to you and wanted to know your heart. That is one of the biggest things that we can do to represent Jesus to our culture, whatever that culture is for you. Be a great listener. Don't just be concerned about... The thing that people do a lot of times when they're in a conversation, I do it too. I do. When the other person's talking, you're already thinking about how you're going to respond. Right? The other person's talking and you're already thinking about what you're going to say next to add to what they said. Man, if we can ever just learn to just be slow to speak. You know, like the book of James says, be slow to speak. Quick to listen. God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason, right? Be quick to listen and hear their heart. To hear their heart. Because a good listener makes someone who's able to love someone well. And on the second part of this, to love, this isn't the world's love. This isn't I'll love you when it feels good. This isn't I'll love you when it's convenient for me. God's love, agape love, is sacrificial in nature, right? It's sacrificial. And I guarantee you, when you're in a culture, especially a secular culture or just a negative culture or whatever, and you begin to love people sacrificially, you go out of, their, out of your way to help them out with whatever their current situation is. You go out of, the, out of your way to encourage them. You go out of your way to sacrificially love them in some way, you are loving people and representing God well. And that is a game changer. When you begin to love like that in the context of your culture, people sit up and take notice. And the biggest thing that they do is they ask, why? Why is this guy or this lady, why do they love like this? What is it about them? There's something beyond them just being a nice person. Why do they listen to me? Why are they concerned? Why do they ask questions? Why do they remember stuff that I told them a month ago that I was struggling with and then come back and ask me, how are you doing? When you love people that way, people sit up and take notice. And it's an opportunity to shift the culture of whatever you're a part of. It's an opportunity uh, to make people ask why and respond. Let's move on. We're running out of time quickly. Uh, the last one here is we are called to be cultural, culture developers. Culture developers. So notice the progression. Be aware. Be discerning about the culture that you're a part of. Be observant. Number two, be a disruptor in the right way with love disrupt the normal flow of what's going on with love, the love of God. And then the third thing, we're not just called to discern, disrupt, but then we are called to develop the culture that we're involved in. Um, I took uh, a lot of time uh, several months back to, just for some personal training and education, went through a, a church planning uh, education season where I read, studied, and watched every single thing I could about church planning and church development. Just wanted to educate myself on that and just get a good understanding for how to do, it, do that and what all it involves. And um, how to develop a healthy church culture. That was big time on my heart, still is. So I just took about a six-month period and just read and studied and watched anything I could get my hands on. One of the best things that I, um, that I saw in this journey was a lecture by a man named Jim Kyles. Jim Kyles used to be on staff at Teen Mania. Um, now he's the pastor of a, a, a pretty large church down in Houston.
but he shared in this lecture on developing a healthy culture. And there's a quote from him that I think would speak to us today. It says, the development of culture in any organization is determined by two critical actions, how we speak and how we invest. I just want to unpack those just for a minute. How we speak, the words that we use, the words that come out of our mouth, either build up or tear down the culture that we're a part of. Proverbs 18.21, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. So if you like to talk a lot, and your words are up, uplifting and edifying and encouraging, the fruit of that is going to be a, a culture of people who are encouraged and uplifted and edified. If you like to talk a lot and your speech is pretty much negative and discouraging and whatever, critical, guess what? The fruit of your speech within your current culture is going to be a culture of criticism and negativity and discouragement. Language builds culture. So we have to be so careful within the context of the culture that we're a part of that we use our words wisely to encourage, to build up, to edify, to strengthen, to bring grace to the hearers of those words because they also have the opposite effect when we go negative. They tear down the culture that we're a part of we can use natural means, which is obvious, to see things about people around us that are a part of that culture to encourage them with, hey, I noticed that you stayed late last week and you uh, took care of that whatever. Man, I just want to say how awesome that is. That is so cool. You're such a hard worker. and uh, that's, just, that's just a really cool characteristic that you have. Just using... Uh, natural means. You're not no supernatural intelligence going on. You just see something about somebody and you choose to speak life and you choose to edify and encourage them. But there's also supernatural where you pray and you ask God, man, really, Lord, I really want to meet, I want to reach this coworker's heart. I really want to share your heart with them. Um, can you just put something on my heart for them? Can you give me something to share? And then the Lord gives you that inroad into their heart. I had a brother uh, even this week, uh, Friday, I've just been going through a season. It's been hard lately. And uh, a brother in another city who knows nothing about anything I'm going, dealing with just ran, hadn't even heard from this guy in months, just randomly sends me a text. And he says, hey, man, take this for what it's worth, but I'm going to go out on a limb here. He said, I had a vision today. And he said, I saw you, and he goes, I'm not going to share the vision with you, it's personal, but he goes on to describe <laughs> in great detail kind of the exact season that I'm in right now. I mean lick for lick. And he said, the reason that I was given this vision for you is because, and then he goes on to share, and it is again lick for lick what I needed and I'm just sitting in my truck, and I'm just like, oh, God. You know, I'm just like the presence of God is just filling my truck. This brother has no, I just sent it back. I said, brother, you have no idea how, you, how much you are hearing the heart of God for me right now and how much I needed to hear that word. Words of life like that, prophetic words, words that come right from the heart of God, that you were willing to step out and encourage. And I like the way he began. He said, look, I don't know if this applies to you or not, but this is what I, what I and I'm, so I'm just going to share it with you. He didn't come out and say, thus saith the Lord, you know? So take the pressure off yourself by telling people, I was praying for you, and I believe I might have heard God say this. If this is not true, disregard it. Put it on the shelf and pray into it, you know? If this is for you, then just know this is what I had for you in prayer. So just, when, if you're freaking out about praying for somebody that way or sharing something that way, 
don't speak as though you know you're you're giving them the very words of God. Just you're human, okay? You're doing the best you can to hear God, and you're opening your heart. And if He gives you a revelation or a word from somebody, that's always the best way to start, right? I was praying for you, and I kind of felt like this was on my heart to share with you, and I want to share it with you in obedience. If it's for you, great. If it's not, set it aside and just just pray about it. But he did that for me. This brother did that for me this past week. You know what he did for me? He flicked a switch on my railway. I'm going this way. I mean, just freight train, a lot of stress, a lot of stuff going on. He flicked a switch, and I was suddenly going this way into peace, into a whole different direction because of his obedience. Use your ability to hear God through the Holy Spirit to encourage people and to change your culture. So let's move on. The last one that we have, and uh, Tinder, you can go ahead and come forward. Um, how we invest. So we shape and change culture by the way that we speak, but we also shape and change culture by the way that we invest. I was reading, I've uh, been going back through the book of Acts, and I was back at, I was towards the end of Acts, and um, you'll remember this if you've been through the book of Acts and, uh, or heard this taught, but Paul had just departed from uh, being in the presence of King Agrippa, and he is being sent away. Uh, Paul was on trial for preaching uh, uh, things that didn't line up with Judaism, and there was a bunch of accusations against him that they were claiming. So he appears before King Agrippa and, and uh, Festus, and he's, he gives them this big speech and dialogue, and, he, and you know he's just going for it, great guns. And uh, I think he almost had them, to be honest with you. I really do. But... Um, nevertheless, they shut his case down, and Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. So Paul's now taking it to the highest court. So they're shipping Paul, so they put him on a ship, they ship him out of that area, they, sh- they ship, their- he's headed for Rome to appeal and appear before Caesar. So they put him uh, under the charge of a centurion named Julius and a, command- and a-, a band of soldiers. So they set sail, and, and it's really too late year to make this kind of journey the weathers the winds are already beginning to shift and turn against them so they they set sail anyway they're headed up the coast and of course the winds begin to come against them so much so that they have to pull into a harbor and ride out a storm for a little bit well the winds change again in their favor and they decide we can make it we can do this so they get back out now paul he's he's not this isn't his first rodeo this guy's been on the sea before. He knows weather. He knows, he, knows, he knows better. So he tells Julius, the centurion, and he's telling these people, this is a bad idea. We, we should harbor. We, don't, we should just wait and go in the spring. It's a bad idea to go right now. But they don't listen to him. They're like, eh. They take off. They pull out. They head out uh, up the coast again. And sure enough, a strong nor'easter comes down. hits the boat, completely sends it off course. They're adrift now in the sea. There's rain, wind, so much so that for 12 or 14 days they can't see the stars. They don't even know how to get their bearings again. They're just out there floating around, and they're freaking out. And that night, Paul, one of those nights in there, Paul uh, has a vision. An angel of the Lord comes to Paul, and he says, Be encouraged. You're going to Rome. You're going to appear before Caesar. And so Paul's reassured. And he, and he tells those men the next day, he says, hey, listen, um, I know things look terrible, and I wish you guys would have listened to me to not do this. But an angel of the Lord visited me last night and reassured me that we're going to make it to Rome, that I'm going to appear before Caesar. And that not a man with me on this journey is going to be lost. We're all going to make it. So be encouraged. So Paul is doing something here. God showed me something here in this this past week or last week. Paul is taking something from the secret place 
And he's bringing it to a group of people and he's sharing it with them to bring them hope. Paul is taking an encounter, a deep encounter that he's had in the presence of God. And he is bringing it to a a group of people who have no respect for him whatsoever. These are not Christians, these are Romans, okay? And he's sharing it with them to encourage them and to bring them hope. Now something happens here. There's a shift in the culture of this ship. This is a big ship, about 276 people on board this vessel. This guy that they completely have disregarded so far and haven't paid attention to now suddenly has something that's very valuable to their ears and to their heart that's coming from the heart of God. And so they head into the storm again and they're doing their best to make it to to land this vessel anywhere they can. But the weather is terrible and it's beating the ship and they're freaking out. And so some of the sailors on board, they decide, man, we got to get off this thing. And they start lowering the lifeboat. They, they lie. It's pretty tricky. They say, we're going to go drop the anchors so that we can slow our drift. But what they really had in mind is that they were going to go lower the lifeboat, get in it, and bail, and leave the prisoners to die. And Paul realizes, or Maybe the Lord tells him or he's discerning in some way. He figures out what they're about to do. And he reminds the centurion about what God had said. Let's pick it up, Acts 27, 30-32. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, You cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. You see what happened here? You see what just took place here? These men literally have now put their lives into the hands of Paul and his God. They cut away their plan B. Paul took a word from the presence of the Lord and from an encounter with the Lord, shared it with a people who had zero connection with the Lord, and now they are basically putting their life in his hands, in the hands of his God. And when I read this last week, something went off in me like a time bomb. God spoke to my heart this, that our leadership the way that we lead and the way that we go after him should testify to the people around us and the people that we're leading that there is a, there's something worth following. There's something worth staying on the ship for. There's something there. I don't understand everything. They may not understand everything you're doing. They may have a lot of questions. But is there fruit in your life? Is there something real there? that would cause those that follow you to say, no plan B, plan A. I'm following God. I don't know what that guy or that lady has. I don't know what, I don't know what they got, but I'm cutting away, I'm cutting away plan B. I'm letting the escape boat drift and I'm going with them. Is there something about your leadership the way you lead in your home, the way you lead in your workplace, the way you lead whatever organization you're affiliated with or in your church, is there something about your life that would cause people to want to go all in with you and with the God that you serve? And that's where I'm landing this today because I think that's the question that God has for us today. And the bottom line is this. That type of investment that they want to make, that's the investment, the all-in investment to follow you, to follow your God. God made that investment in you. God invested that way in 
each one of us. Amen? God gave the best. And when he invested in us, he gave the best he had. It wasn't with perishable things like silver or gold that we were redeemed, but with the precious blood of a lamb, the lamb, Jesus Christ. God gave his only begotten son. He gave the best he had. He went, he pushed his chips all the way to the middle of the table and said, I'm all in for that one. I'm all in for that one and that one and all of them. I'm all in. That's the kind of investment that was made for our lives. And that's the kind of investment that we're called to make into the lives of the people around us and the cultures that we're a part of. Amen? I just want to close this morning in prayer, just spending a few moments, uh, just a couple of moments in prayer. Would you stand to your feet for a moment? Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, you know, we don't often do this, but we say, uh, where we just open up an invitation here. But maybe you're thinking to yourself, I have not taken plan A. I've always had a plan B. Plan A being Jesus Christ and following Him. And I've banked my life on having a plan B. Today's your day to choose plan A. Today's your day to say, I'm pushing it all to the middle of the table and I'm going all in with Jesus. Today's your day. So with every eye closed, every head bowed, Let's just pause in his presence this moment. And let's just say this together. Just say this with me. Jesus, Jesus. there's no plan B. Jesus, you're plan A. And I receive you. Have my life. Have my heart have my future have my past have all that I am and have all that I'll ever be forgive me for my sins and be the Lord of my life Jesus your plan A Heavenly Father I pray for anybody right now within the sound of my voice here or on this podcast that hears it, that just prayed that prayer for the first time, I pray right now that they would begin to feel your presence, Lord God, in a way that they've never felt it before. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just become so alive and active in the work of regeneration in their heart that they would begin to feel, even right now, like a brand new person, that they would begin to feel a complete liberty from the past and a complete hope about the future. And Lord, for the rest of us here today, Lord God, I pray that you would give us the courage to invest in the lives and in the cultures that we're a part of in the same way that we've been invested in, Lord. Lord, I pray that as we begin to walk in the boldness and in the faith, Lord God, that you've given us, and then most of all, the love that's been poured into our hearts as we begin to walk in that this week in the various cultures that we're a part of that we would begin to see Lord God a shift Lord God even if it just begins one life at a time give us opportunities this week Lord God to be a light into this world God we bless you today we honor you with all that we are and the greatest desire of our heart is to live our lives in a way that brings you glory and that sets captives free. So Lord, just have us again as if it were the first time. And even if it is the first time, just have us right now. We're yours. Use us however you desire this week. And we will walk in obedience in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray and we glorify you. All God's people said, 
Amen. 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 God bless you and you are dismissed. I'm